You are now listening to the October 26th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Walking Our Talk, Grace Upon Grace, and Understanding Israel. First, let's begin with Walking Our Talk. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller. Join our conversation as we discuss practical ways to apply spiritual principles to your everyday life and help you walk your talk one step at a time. Welcome back to Walking Our Talk. This is Alan Heller with Polly. Hello. Good to see you. Yeah, you too. And um, we love things better together is yes. what we say. We don't compete with each other. We complete each other. So we're talking about discipleship and we're actually going to turn a corner and we're going to talk about disciple making. But we did talk last time a little bit about um, Greg Laurie talked about the requirements to be a disciple. We talked about love. God more than anyone else. That's sort of a given, I would say. Number two was to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. Number three was to forsake all that you have. Sort of like the rich young ruler. Uh, he was holding on to his possessions and God doesn't have any problem with wealth. He just wants us to use it for his purposes instead of ours. The requirement four was to count the cost. We're going to be talking today about discipleship, disciple-making. John thirteen thirty-five says this, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And the problem with that word love in English, we say I love ice cream and I love Polly. And uh, certainly there's a big difference between that and ice cream always wins. That. No, no, no. no a, then we'll have to have another I we'll have to have a counseling session. It's after a different that. quality of love. Right. So <laughs> the love that we're talking about is God's love, agape love. And especially as you end up discipling people, you have to learn to let them fail and let them fail forward, hopefully, be an encouragement to them rather than. Uh, squashing their excitement about taking on a project or becoming a certain kind of person. But many times, I think uh, the book was written by Chuck Swindoll called uh, Three Steps Forward, Two Steps Backward. If you get that combination wrong, you're going backwards. If, you, <laughs> if it's two steps forward, three steps backward, that becomes you're a problem. You're not making any forward No, progress. no, no. So, um, but many times we... Uh, have difficulty moving along in a maturing process. And really, to be a disciple maker, you just need to be a good disciple. And one of the easy acronyms that we use is, uh, if that's the right word, um, is FACTS. Uh, faithful, it used to be FAT, Faithful, Available, and Teachable, but then somebody added C, FACTS, for committed. In other words, oh. if there's no commitment and you're faithful, available, you're teachable, but you're not there, and you, you stop when it gets hard. So I, th I like the word fact, a fact person. Right. And, you know, I've been thinking as you've been talking that we both, you and I, became Christians as young adults. Mm -hmm. And so 
we didn't grow up in Christian families. We didn't grow up in the church. And becoming a follower of Christ, becoming a believer, was a, such a big change in right. our lives. And we both jumped into not just being a Christian and not just going to church, but into being disciples and being discipled by very committed disciple makers. And that has Well, we didn't think a, there was anything else, did we? Well, right. I mean, we were I, imprinted that, was what I that was, way. I was given a call and asked, do I want to do this? And I knew that, you know, my Jewish mother wasn't going to be real excited <laughs> right. about this commitment. And so I had to think about that and my father as well. Right. And so we started in a different plane. I mean, we didn't know anything, but we right. were committed. Well, we, right. We didn't know any different. And I couldn't imagine that somebody would not be as committed to following Christ as I was. I couldn't imagine that somebody wouldn't want to tell other people about Jesus or wouldn't want to follow him completely or allow him to change habits and patterns and um, just give, give total guidance to their life. And yet, as I, as I gained experience in my walk with the Lord and, and met more church people, people who had grown up going to church, I ran into people who called themselves Christians, but didn't think of themselves as disciples. And we were asked the question and pondered the question, can you really be a Christian and not be a disciple of Jesus? Hmm. And what it was the answer? <laughs> well. Or you got many different answers. I, I think there are a lot of answers, and I think there are a lot of people who consider themselves to be Christians but really don't think of Christian in terms of being completely committed to Christ. They kind of walk with one foot in the world and one foot in the church and don't have that idea of Jesus being there all in all or Jesus just filling every moment of their lives. It's, right. You know, it's like, well, this part of my life belongs to Jesus, but then I have this whole thing over here right. that I want to control. Well, and early in my Christian life, there was this little booklet, uh, I don't know if it was by Trumbull or somebody else, called My Heart, Christ's Home. And the parable went that, you know, uh, you came in this house and the house represented your life and you invited God in and he came into the foyer and everything was fine and he came into the living room and I said look at my beautiful living room and that was fine and and even you could come up to my bedroom that was fine and then he started snooping around and he got to a closet that had a whole bunch of junk in it and I don't want you to go in that closet right. and he goes if I don't go in your closet you then I'm not really in your life and I think that's what happens with uh, people they they three-quarters give their life instead of totally committing their life. And, of course, all of us, what we do is we say, well, my experience doesn't match this commitment that I'm making, and I'm not perfect. And God says, I died for all people. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, 
he died for us. So he died when we were messy. So we don't have to clean up our act, but we do grow and mature and become a disciple by loving one another, by doing what he says. He says that uh, happy are those who love me and do my commandments, not read them and have a good quiet time and hope that some of it sticks. So. <laughs> right. And I think that it, because you are a counselor, mm-hmm. and but your counseling is Bible-based. Right. So you're doing biblical counseling. You're not giving people a lot of psychological, well, you need to think this way. and, and well, I do do a think this way because the Bible says you're transformed by the renewing of your mind. So, you know, we don't totally... Uh, there's some crossover there with psychology. Psychology is about thinking. Right, how you think. But what do you base your thinking on then? Uh, the Word of God. And what <laughs> others base their thinking on in psychology is the research, and they're comparing man to man. And what I say, psychology is basically defining every area of the flesh perfectly. <laughs> but defining the flesh doesn't give you victory, doesn't give you the ability to overcome sin. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think many times psychology is just defining the things they're naming, putting a name on something that's a symptom rather than the real root cause. And uh, certainly there are chemical issues, but that's like one or two percent of the cases and 98 percent is usually cognitive thinking as well as not living life by my feelings and all that sort of thing. So, right, yes, right, it's, a right. different, it's a different way of looking at helping people. So when you're talking about discipleship, how does discipleship interact with your counseling? What, how do, where do they... Yeah, I think it's hard to know where one ends and one begins. You know, we have many... There are people that are good at defining things, and, you know, there are mentors. Mentor is somebody who is older, wiser, and has been through what you've been through. So you have a mentor. Then there are people that are coaches. And a coach, you see a coach on the sidelines. When they get on the field, the umps or the the referees tell them, get off the field. You're not a player, <laughs> even though maybe they used to be a player and in their mind, <laughs> they're ready to go hit them. But they're not the ones that are but actually they're not the out game. there doing it. So a coach <laughs> is an encourager. He also has wisdom like a mentor to be able to know what you should do. But he's basically there to draw the X's and O's and then say, you go out and do it. Mm-hmm. In discipleship, I think, uh, as Jesus defined it, he chose people for himself. So uh, a counselee may be coming to me out of their pain. And then the question is, somewhere along the way, my goal would be they would be a disciple. In other words, they may be a disciple that's in a critical condition, emotionally, mentally, or spiritually. We get them up and running and then they are a disciple that's healthy now instead of a disciple that's not healthy. Mm -hmm. But discipleship in Jesus' way of thinking was coming alongside somebody, asking the Father. I mean, he prayed about who he was going to choose. So God chooses you as a disciple. And then the discipler walks with that person. And as somebody said, Jesus picked them and 
they watched him do what he did, heal, raise the dead, uh, watched his character as he walked and talked with men and women. And so they watched him, and then they did it with him. He took them out on these uh, experiences where not only did he do it, he had them doing it. And then he said, you go. So like he sent the 70 and those guys had to go and they came back all excited. Wow, Jesus, people were healed and we're so excited. And Jesus in his wisdom says, just be glad that your name is written in the book of life. And all those other things are great. But the most important thing is that you have a relationship with me. So you watch him do it. You do it with him and give him some critique. Then you send them off. They do it. But he also inspects what he expects. So he brings them back and gives them good counsel and says, be thankful that your names are written in the book of life, even though you're so emotionally excited about all these things that I did through you. So to me, discipleship is for me has been over the years, finding somebody in crisis, walking with them, because pain is a great motivator, Paulie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I discovered that. <laughs> <laughs> it drives us to do things. Sometimes if it's out of fear, we can do the wrong thing. And, and what the Bible says is perfect love casts out fear. And so when things are fearful, when they're hard, and not that uh, we don't have hard things that are going on, But there should be a peace inside as we go through hard things when we're walking in the power of the Spirit with the Lord. And speaking of that, I just want to say, if you just tuned in, we're Walk and Talk. Uh, This podcast is Walking Your Talk because we think it's important to walk out what the Word of God says. And we connect people with God and each other. And if you want to get more resources, just go to walkandtalk.org. That's spell out and w-a-l-k-a-n-d-t-a-l-k dot org so that's what i think being a disciple is well a discipler okay uh, oh a disciple well that's what i do with people mm-hmm, mm-hmm. now so counseling and discipling when i'm counseling i am taking a specific issue that this person has and what i call them are symptoms they're really just Many times when somebody says, well, we just don't communicate. I mean, almost 90% of the people that come into my counseling office as couples are saying communication is our issue. Mm -hmm. Well, definitely communication is your issue. But I see, they don't see, I see selfishness is really your issue. And your pride. And the fact that who is running your life in Campus Crusade or now it's called Crew, They used to have this circle that represented your life, and then there was a chair in the middle which represented a throne, which Americans don't relate to. So really (laughs) it would be, who is the CEO of your life? (laughs) So if you're on the center of your life, and that's what life revolves around, things are gonna not work out very well. Mm -hmm. And Jesus is off the side. For some people, he's outside the life. For some people, he's inside the life, but I got the steering wheel. Well, it's a little different when I move from the passenger side and end up in the driver's seat than when Jesus is in the driver's seat. And I think there's a country western song on, you know, Jesus take the wheel. So (laughs) that's what we need to do. We need to pass the wheel to him and say, please take the wheel. So I meet a person in crisis. 
I listen and empathize and work with them until I build trust. And then I walk with them through a crisis. Sometimes in the middle of their argument, I'm saying, call me when, when she does this or he does this. And so that in the midst of the emotion, there's a lot more motivation to heal and, and to do the right thing when they're coached mm -hmm. in the midst of that. And so that's a very specific thing, counseling. Coaching is really looking at the present and finding out how we can go in the future. Counseling is looking at the past. I, I'm not Freudian in my how I work with people in that I don't think there are answers in the past per se, but trauma and there's many people that have experienced PTSD in their past and have never dealt with it and never knew they needed to forgive, confess, let go of that past and give it to God rather than taking it on themselves and having ulcers and, um, you know, bunions or I don't know. <laughs> All kinds of physiological. Whatever. You know, what happens is <laughs> gastrointestinal when we keep, issues. Right, when we keep stuffing it in, sometimes it ends up coming out in health issues. Mm -hmm. So counseling is looking at the past, helping them get through that to look to the future. Uh, in coaching, it's really taking somebody from where they are and helping them go uh, into a much, into their future and make a plan and stick to it and keep them accountable Discipling, to me, is somewhere in between. I mean, you look at the disciples and how Jesus worked with them. A lot of them were in crisis. They were having a hard time. Jesus said, what do you want? And he made a guy who was sitting at the pool of Bethsaida um, for 32 years. The waters got troubled. Nobody would get him in there. And Jesus said, get up, go in. And he got healed. Well, you think he might be a disciple after that? <laughs> and I think disciple means a learner. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just a five-step program and you read these books and get these things. I mean, that's the Western way of thinking it is that of discipling is you got 13 weeks, you do your program, now you've been discipled. <laughs> you read all, read all the books, fill in all the answers. And but here at the end of Paul's life, he says in Romans 7, I do the very thing I don't want to do. The very thing I want to do, I find myself not doing. Who will set me free from this law of sin and death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. He has set me free from the law of sin and death. And then he goes on in 8.1 and says, There is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. So much of the time as I'm connecting people with God and each other, I'm trying to help them understand first who God is and then who God says they are and then walk out in very practical ways which maybe we could talk about next time, is what are the practical ways that we give people to walk their talk? I think that's a great idea. Because what I'm hearing in what you just said is that Paul was saying, look, I, I struggle. I have, I have walked with, with the risen Christ all of these years, and I s still struggle with my flesh. And wrote three quarters of the New Testament. <laughs> Right, right. But he's still fighting the good fight. But he says, forgetting what lies behind, I press on to the goal of my high calling, which is Christ in you. Right, Colossians right. says, the hope 
of glory. Right. So he says the struggle is real. The struggle is ongoing. The struggle is daily. But the answer is real. And the victory, the victory is real. And the victory is daily. And it's there for you as long as you are making that choice. So we need to give them some practical tools. And next podcast, we hope you'll tune in. And we'll talk about some practical things of what a disciple maker does, as well as I mean, if you're a disciple maker, you have to be a disciple. <laughs> and uh, we we look forward to being with you next time. Thanks, Paulie, for all your great insights there. That's great. And uh, we just look forward to helping you walk your talk. This has been Walking Our Talk with Alan and Paulie Heller, where we put into action those principles we know from God's Word, one step at a time. You can find more help at our website, walkandtalk.org.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Malter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is how the spiritual war will be won, based on Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. Today we begin a brand new sermon series on armor, winning the battle. We are going to be looking at the armor of God. Now, if you don't know where the armor of God is found in the Bible, it is found in Ephesians chapter 6. So we're going to be in this for about two months. So if you have your Bibles, you might just put a bookmark on Ephesians chapter 6 or put a piece of paper there. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you, or I'll just have it on the screen. But uh, it's going to be a very, very powerful sermon series. As you know, it is vitally important that we talk about spiritual warfare on a regular basis. It's just that important of a subject. There's not only a spiritual war going on, it often manifests itself in the physical world. And I think we saw an example of that with these two mass shootings. The shootings and the evil things that are happening in the world, folks, are just manifestations of what's happening in the spiritual world. The fact of the matter is, we as believers, we are in a war. You know, many of us, um, many of you have served in the military, but many others haven't. And when you haven't served in the military, you can feel like you've been left out because it is an honor. And many of you have served admirably and we honor you. And it's a wonderful thing that we do that. But for those of us that haven't, you can kind of go, well, man, I wish I would have served. But the fact of the matter is, if you're a believer, you served. You're serving in a war. You're serving the King of Kings. You are part of the armies of heaven. We are in a war. And as one of my favorite theologians said, It is warfare on a grand scale. It is warfare on a grand scale. Now, I don't like to change the quotes of my favorite theologians, but I will change this one. Really, it is warfare on the grandest scale. It is warfare on the grandest scale. It is the war of all wars. As one of my, another theologian put it, he said, even though the victory is secure, it has to be won through battle. Yes, Jesus died. He rose again. He is the king of kings. He has secured the victory. But for those of us in this lifetime, the battle This war must be won through a daily battle. Don't believe me that we're in a spiritual warfare? I received a text this week. So we sent a group down to Brazil and they are in flight. They are going to land tomorrow morning at 1130. So the team that we sent down to Brazil is flying back. A couple of days ago, though, I'm sitting in my house and I received a text. My phone goes off. As a matter of fact, it goes off very early in the morning. And this is what it said. It's from Brian Halverson. He's one of the guys on our team. He said this, pastors, Please pray for Ken McQueen and me. In two hours, we are going to the last house. We are going to our last house visit. We're going to our last house visit to a home that is believed by locals to be oppressed by Satan. There are a lot of problems in the house and the family has renounced God. This will by far be our biggest challenge since being here, Brian. Yeah, that team faced spiritual warfare. They're going to a house that the locals are saying is demon oppressed. You know you're in deep when the locals are telling you, don't go to that house. And yet, what are the believers that we sent down there doing? They're like, we're going to that house. We're going to that house. We're going to proclaim the gospel. We are going to set the captives free. Folks, we are in the war of all wars. It is a war that not only you and I are engaged in, it is a war that the holy angels are engaged in. We see examples of this throughout the scripture. And again, if scriptures didn't give us insight into the spiritual world, some of this would be hard to believe. This is Daniel, of course. Daniel was um, one of the prophets in exile. Ezekiel and Daniel were two of the prophets in exile while they were in the Babylonian captivity. Daniel is praying, and the minute he prays, God hears. But what's interesting is it takes three weeks for the angel that is dispatched to get to Daniel. Then he said to me, the angel said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humble yourself before your God, 
Your words have been heard. So from the very moment you humbled yourself and started to pray, know that your words were heard. God hears. And I have come because of your words. I was dispatched immediately because of your prayers. The prince of the kingdom of Persia, however, withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. Again, if it weren't in the Bible, it would be hard to believe. But here Daniel starts praying. His words are heard on high. An angel is dispatched to bring the answer, and he is with oppressed or contended with for 21 days. You might remember that Michael, the archangel, had to battle Satan over the body of Moses, Jude 9. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. Again, if it weren't in the Bible, I wouldn't believe it. There's all sorts of crazy stuff happening in the spiritual world all the time. Angels are doing battle with Satan over getting our prayers answered. They're disputing over the body of Moses, and who knows what else is going on. In Job, I had somebody after I preached last night came up to me and said, in Job, the Bible says that Satan presented himself to Satan, and Satan and God are having a conversation. If it weren't in the Bible, it would be hard to believe. But there is stuff happening in the spiritual world that is beyond our wildest imagination. We are in the war of all wars. But the battle isn't just confined to the spiritual world. As I already said, it often manifests itself in the physical world. Again, the two mass shootings that just happened in the last 24 hours, I think that's a perfect example of that. But we see examples of the spiritual world manifesting itself in the physical world in the Bible. For example, 1 Thessalonians 2 says this, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. Satan hinders. Satan oppresses. He gets in the way. He gets in the way of angels dispatching the answers of God. He gets in the way of the saints doing what they feel God is calling him to do. This is what he does. This is the war we are in. Many of you this week may not have realized it, but you encountered spiritual warfare. There are times in which I counter spiritual warfare, and it's not till like a week or two later that I go, oh my gosh, that was spiritual warfare. There are times that I encounter spiritual warfare, and it's my wife who will tell me we're in spiritual warfare. And I'm like, what? I'm like, you're right. It's amazing, but we can be blind to the fact that we are in the war of all wars, and it's what's happening in the spiritual is often manifesting in the physical, and sometimes we just don't see it for what it is, at least at that time. And it's only later that we begin to recognize it. Take Paul's words to the church of Ephesus. Here's another perfect example of the spiritual manifesting itself in the physical. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul knows the second I leave, here's what's going to happen. Satan is going to go to work and he's going to raise up false teachers within the church who are going to do great damage. So we are very much in the war of all wars. It's a war that started in heaven when Satan first rebelled, and it is a war that will continue until Satan is ultimately defeated. Where do we see him defeated? Revelation 20. I saw the great dragon thrown into the lake of fire. Amen? Amen. But until that day, even though the battle is won, it must be procured daily as you and I fight the good fight. And this morning, we're going to be looking at perhaps the most foundational truth Now, this truth, when I state it, it's going to sound simple, but as we unpack it, it is very powerful. We are going to be looking at one of the most foundational truths that everybody needs to know when it comes to the issue of spiritual warfare, and it is this. What is the source of your strength? What is the source of your strength? So without a doubt, one of the first things any ruler 
or general will do before going to war is he will assess the strength of his army. Do I have the strength to fight? Because there's no point in going to war if the army that you have isn't strong enough to go up against the army that you're about to face. As a matter of fact, Jesus said this, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Again, if you don't have the strength to fight the war, you're a fool to go to war. Now, in the case of us who are believers, we are in a war with an incredibly powerful enemy. The strength of our enemy is strong and his depravity is beyond measure. He is a strong and evil being. The last thing we want to do is underestimate him. Here's the deal. The fact that Satan is so powerful and so depraved should not cause us to despair. Why? As long as we who are believers remember the source of our strength, as long as we stay tapped into that source of strength, we will be fine. Amen? We will be fine if we stay tapped into the source of our strength. 1 John 4, 4 says this, For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Greater is the one that is in you than the one that is against you. As believers, we have the spirit of the living God living in us. So we don't ever have to wonder, do I have the strength to fight this war that I'm in? Yes, you do. If you will stay tapped into that source of strength, if you will resist the temptation to look to the things of this world to deliver you in your time of need, but rather look with all of your heart to the Lord. If you will look to him as your source of strength, then you can be confident and sure, I have the strength. I have what I need to fight this good fight. And that is why in our passage today on the armor of God, which can be found in the book of chapter, yes, Ephesians chapter six, beginning in verse, I didn't tell you this, beginning in verse 10, Ephesians 6, 10 is the armor of God. That is why in our passage today, the very first thing the apostle Paul says is this, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Listen, before I even get into the armor of God, Paul says, you need to understand this. You must resist the temptation to look to yourself or to the things of this world to be your source of strength in this war. You must, with all of your heart, look to the Lord and his strength. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Folks, this without a doubt is one of the most foundational principles when it comes to spiritual warfare that you and I have to cling to. We have to believe. We have to trust. You see, whether you know it or not, the temptation to rely upon the things of this world are very, is very, very great. It is very, very great. And if we are not careful, we can very well find ourselves trusting in everything other, everything and everyone other than the Lord. And if there's one thing the Bible is crystal clear about, it is the danger of trusting in the things of this world and not the Lord. Psalm 33 says this, the king is not saved by his great army. He's not. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation and its great might. And in its great might, it cannot rescue. You see, we all have war horses. We all have that thing that we look to in time of need as our source of strength. Let me ask you this morning, what's your war horse? When you need strength, where do you look? See, the danger is, is that when we choose something of this world to be our source of strength, it becomes an idol. It becomes our war horse. It becomes the thing that I look to in time of need. This will deliver me. In ancient times, the kings, what would they do? They would look to their great army. They would look to their horses. They would look, you know, to their own strength. But the Bible is crystal clear. None of these things will deliver you in your time of need. You might remember the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah lived 700 years before the time of Christ. And he 
ministered at a time of Israel's apostasy. And he warned them, he said, listen, you're going to be taken into captivity. And Israel, you know what they did? Instead of turning to the Lord, looking to the Lord, they looked to Egypt. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. The nation that had oppressed Israel for 400 years, remember they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years, right? We just looked at that over the summer. They, the nation that had oppressed them for 400 years was now the nation that they were looking to to deliver them. Oh, how times change. Instead of looking to the Lord, they looked to this nation that had oppressed them. Oh, how times change. Truly incredible. You know, that temptation is there for you and I. What is your war horse? You know, a lot of us, we look to the economy. We've got a great economy. I can handle anything. We've got a great military. I can handle anything. I've got a great family. I can handle anything. I've got a great pension. I can handle anything. I've got a big bank account. I can handle anything. I'm a strong person. I can handle anything. Oh, can you? Folks, do not look to the things of this world to deliver you in your time of need. You look to the Lord your God with all of your heart. Amen? This is what we do. It is the truly wise man, wise woman who recognizes the battle belongs to the Lord. Psalm 27, some trust in chariots and some in horses. Now, I never want to tinker with the word of God, but I might add this word, many trust in chariots and many trust in horses because this is the temptation. We who are believers, though we be few, we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. Proverbs 21, 31 says, the horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs for the Lord. In other words, we do what we need to do. We lock our doors at night. We have bank accounts. We take care of ourselves. We protect ourselves. But ultimately, we don't trust in our locks at night. We don't trust in our bank accounts or our security codes. We trust in the Lord our God, right? Why do you sleep at peace at night? Because you locked your door? No, no. Yes, you lock your door. You did all due diligence, but you sleep at night because your Lord is watching over you. Your God is watching over you. He is your protector. He is your deliverer. Amen? The victory belongs to the Lord. The horse is made ready for battle. Yes, we do all due diligence. But ultimately, we who are believers know that that horse, it's just a tool. The true deliverer is God. And so it's not surprising in the least that the Apostle Paul exhorts the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter, beginning in verse, he begins by telling them to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might, because any other course of action on their part would be utterly foolish and very, very dangerous. But listen, even though it is foolish and dangerous to look anywhere else other than the Lord for your source of strength, like I already said, the temptation can be so great at times. Now here's the kicker. For the Apostle Paul, being strong in the Lord is an all-in proposition. It is an all-in proposition. I am to find all of my strength in all of the Lord all of the time. I am to find all of my strength in all of the Lord all of the time. I resist the temptation even for a moment to look to the things of this world. I do not dare give God 99% of my hope and my desire and 1% to the world. I give him all. I trust in him. I find all of my strength in all of the Lord all of the time. And that is why in this very next sentence in our passage today, Paul says these words, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Put it all on. Everything that God has provided for you, put it on. Don't leave anything off. It is an all-in proposition. I will find all of my strength in all of the Lord all of the time. Not just some of the armor of God. I will put all of it on. By the way, 
Paul probably was chained to Roman soldiers when he penned these words to the church of Ephesus, or at very least, they were guarding him nearby. You can imagine Paul drawing inspiration as he stared at the armor that the Romans put on every day. Those, you know, it's fascinating to you. You think those soldiers that were assigned to the apostle Paul, they're like, oh gosh, I got Paul today. You know, little did they know that they were going to be the inspiration for Paul to write a text of this section of scripture that would inspire the church for the next 2000 years. Incredible, huh? God can use anyone anytime for any purpose that he wants. Even a Roman soldier getting dressed in the morning to go to guard the apostle Paul thinking, oh, I got that assignment. Oh no, God's going to use you to inspire Paul to write a text that's going to inspire millions upon millions of people for 2000 years. Incredible. And this isn't the only place where Paul talks about armor. I don't know if you knew that. Paul also refers to the armor of God as the armor of light. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Put on the armor of God. Put on the armor of light. We are also called to put on Christ. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desire. And by the way, we can tend to think make no provision for the flesh as don't give in to worldly temptations. You don't want to know what are the greatest temptations that you don't want to give in to? Trusting the things of the world to deliver you in your time of need. Make no provision for you to look to the things of, of this world when you need it. Your source of strength does not come from the things of the world. It comes from the Lord. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep your eyes focused on him. He is your strength. He is your deliverer. And do not trust in the things of this world. The point is very simple, folks. We have a responsibility in this war. The war is won on a daily basis until Satan is ultimately destroyed. You and I have a responsibility. If we fail to put on what God has called us to put on, what God has provided for us to put on, we should not be surprised when Satan gets the upper hand. I meet Christians all the time and they're in the midst of spiritual warfare and they're being defeated. The question, the immediate question is this, have you put on the whole armor of God? Because if you have, the Bible makes it abundantly clear, you can stand up against the devil's schemes. You will have enough power, everything that you need to stand up against the devil's schemes. If you don't, do not be surprised when Satan gets the upper hand. Don't be surprised when he starts wreaking havoc in your family, in your life, in your finances, in your career, whatever it is. Don't be surprised when Satan gets the upper hand. If you and I haven't put on what God has provided for us to put on and called to put on, that is the whole armor of God. By the way, do you want to know the type of person who fails to put on the whole armor of God? The type of person who doesn't understand the, of the nature of the battle we are in. It is also the type of person who doesn't understand the depravity of the enemy we are facing. The enemy we are facing is incredibly powerful and he, is, he has nothing but evil intentions for you. Do you understand this? Purely evil intentions. Think of the most evil person you can think of right now in your mind. Hitler, Manson, maybe it's somebody you know, I don't know. That person, hopefully they're not in this room right now. Think of the most evil person you can think of, right? They pale in comparison to the enemy that you face. Satan has nothing but depraved, evil, immoral intentions towards you. And he is hell-bent on getting at you. He is relentless and ruthless in his pursuit of you. He is described as a lion on the prowl, looking for someone to devour. That someone is you and me. The type of person that doesn't put on the whole armor of God is the type of person who doesn't understand the nature of the battle we are in. It is also the type of person who doesn't understand the depravity of the enemy we are facing. Folks, if you were a soldier in the military in the Middle East, you would put on the whole armor of God. Anybody here serving the Iraq war or in the Middle East anywhere? Do we have anybody in, in this service? Listen, if you were deployed to the Middle East, if you were deployed to a, a region of the Middle East where you knew that you were going to be up against ISIS fighters, would you dare enter the battle without putting on all the armor that your government had provided for you? 
Not only would you put it all on, you would double and triple check it, wouldn't you? You would strap things down, tighten and tighten and tighten, and then go back over it. You'd probably do it two, three, four times. Then you would probably turn to your buddy and say, hey, look me over. Do I look good? Am I missing anything? As a matter of fact, I read during the wars that we were fighting in the Middle East, families would often buy better equipment and send it to their sons and daughters that were fighting so that they could have the best armor. Listen, folks, if you wouldn't dare go up against ISIS without wearing the full armor that has been provided for you, why then would you go up against someone that was infinitely more evil and powerful without the armor that God has provided for you? Why? And yet, you know what? I do it every day. I wake up with a haphazard, lazy attitude, and I walk into the day. God has provided us armor, and it is our job to wear it because we are in a war of all wars. The type of person that doesn't put on the full armor of God is also the type of person who is either exceedingly naive or extremely proud. Now, of course, the naive person doesn't put on the full armor of God because he or she is just clueless to the ramifications of not doing so. They might be young in their faith or inexperienced. That's okay. There was a time in my life when I was young and inexperienced. I became a Christian right before my junior year in high school, so I was just turning 17. And as a young Christian, I didn't understand the nature of the war that I was in. I knew that Satan was bad, but I just didn't know how bad. I didn't know how much he was after me. And so there, I was naive. And I had to grow in my understanding, and I did through some very hard-fought lessons and some, through Satan getting the better of me at times where it was just like, wow, I need to put on the whole armor of God. The proud person doesn't put on the full armor of God because he or she, and this is the danger, he or she thinks that they are strong enough to handle matters by themselves. This person is perhaps, it's not even perhaps, this person is in far greater danger than the naive person. Listen, folks, pride is a killer. And we as American, American Christians, we can be proud. We can be a proud people, right? And one of the key places that pride will really hurt you is when it comes to spiritual warfare. Folks, if pride is keeping you from humbling yourself and being fully dependent upon the Lord, from putting on the armor of God, from casting out the idols in your life that you have been trusting, the war horses in your life that you've been trusting, whether that be your bank account, your pension, your own strength, your family, whatever it is, if pride is keeping you from being fully dependent upon the Lord, let today be the day that changes. And see, that's what this whole sermon series is about. That's the whole point of the sermon series. We must understand the significance of each piece of armor because when we understand the significance of each piece of armor, we won't dare enter the day without putting it on. You understand what a helmet does for you against ISIS. You understand what body armor does for you against ISIS. Well, in the same way, there's a helmet, a spiritual helmet to put on and spiritual body armor to put on. And they will protect you against an enemy far worse than ISIS. And that is Satan himself. That is Satan himself. So there's a very interesting story in the Old Testament that I want to draw our attention to as I begin to wrap things up. It illustrates two men, one trusting in the Lord as his source of strength and one trusting in the things of this world as the source of his strength. So we're all familiar with the historical event, right? David and Goliath. It's one of the most popular stories in all the Bible. We all know it. David, a shepherd boy, goes to the front lines where he finds the Israelites terrified each morning, this great gigantic Philistine comes out and he mocks the Israelites and mocks their God. And David, this young shepherd boy, shows up and what does he say? He says one of the greatest lines in all the Bible. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he dare defy the armies of the living God? One of the best lines. I mean, that is movie quality, Twitter ready. You know, if they had Twitter back then, that would have exploded. The, your phone would have blown up right? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he dare defy the armies of the living God? David is furious at what he's seeing. 
the Israelites who supposedly were trusting in God were running in fear. And so David goes and he presents himself to Saul and he says, I'll fight. And Saul, what Saul does, he looks to the things of this world to deliver David. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. Yeah, Saul is a man whose eyes are focused on the things of this world. David, I'll put my armor on you. He put on a helmet of bronze. He put a helmet of bronze on his head. Now, when we get into the spiritual, when we get into the armor of God in the weeks to come, there is a helmet that you and I are to put on. It is the helmet of salvation found in Ephesians chapter, beginning in verse, you got it. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. The coat of mail was that thing that you put on, it was the chain-linked armor that, would, you know, that you would put on that would kind of be like a shirt, but it was chain-linked armor. And David strapped the sword over his armor. Now, we have a sword in our fight, right? It is the sword of the, you guys got it. It's the sword of the spirit. We're going to learn about that in a couple of weeks. And then it goes on to say this. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Now, often we say people think that David was a small man because when he tried on the armor that it was too big for him. That's not the case. He just wasn't used to it. He had tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. And it's a good thing he had not tested them because he had tested something else and found that something else to be better. You know what David had tested and found to be better? God, the strength of the Lord. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Remember what I just said, put on the armor of God, put on the armor of light, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. David was a man who in that moment, everyone must have thought he was crazy. He put off what the world trusts in. And I'm going to tell you right now, when you are finding your strength in the Lord and he is your deliverer and he is your victor, the world is going to look at you and go, why aren't you putting on the things that the world puts on? And you're going to go, I don't need those things because I trust in the Lord, my God. And they're going to think you're crazy in that moment. But who's the crazy one? The one that trusts in bronze and metal and wood or the one that trusts in the Lord, our God? David ends up taking off the physical armor that Saul had given to him, but do not be mistaken. In that moment, David revealed a heart of a man who was trusting in God to be his deliverer. David goes out to fight. Then David said to the Philistine, you come at me with a sword and with a spear and with javelin. And that's not surprising because you, Goliath, are doing exactly what Saul did and what everyone else is doing. You look to chariots and horses and metal and armor to save you. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands. And here's one of the next best lines that David ever uttered. And I will strike you down and cut off your head. <laughs> is that awesome? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine to divide the armies of the living God? I'm going to cut off your head. You didn't know this was going to be an R-rated a sermon today. And I will give these dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword or spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. Amen. Folks, when you are trusting in your own strength, Goliath will look like an invincible giant. But when you are trusting in the strength of the Lord, Goliath will look like a dead man walking. For Saul, do you want to know why the Israelites were cowering? Because their leader was cowering. The leader of Israel, Saul, was looking to the things of this world to deliver him, and Saul looked like an invincible giant. Here comes a shepherd boy trusting in the strength of the Lord, and Goliath was a dead man walking, and so were all the Philistines. I'm going to chop your head off, and I'm going to take your army and feed them to the birds of the air. Why? Because my God is awesome. My God delivers. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. 
Of course, putting on the whole armor of God is spelled out for us in our passage today. Let's go back. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Remember, I'm going to find all of my strength and all of the Lord all of the time. It's an all-in proposition. Why? That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Folks, you never have to doubt if you will have the strength to stand against the schemes of the devil. You have everything you need. God has provided everything you need to stand against the schemes of the devil. It is your responsibility and my responsibility to put it on. This idea of being able to stand carries the idea of holding a critical position under attack. You do understand this, folks. You, if you are a true believer, are critically important. You might think, who am I? I'm nobody. You're somebody. You've been redeemed by the living God, and he has you where he has you in life for a reason. There's nothing accidental about your life. He has placed you where you are right now for a reason. You are in a critical position, and it is his desire that you hold that position. You might be sitting here today and going, nobody knows who I am. What am I doing? You are somebody if you've been redeemed by God. He has put you where you are. You are in a critical position and he wants you to hold that position. You may not know why he's got you in that particular outpost, but hold that outpost. Be a faithful soldier. Stand your ground. Put on the whole armor of God. Everything you need that has been given to you is there for you to stand your ground. Jesus, by the way, said the same thing to the church at Thyatira. He said, but to the rest of you in Thyatira, that is the faithful Christians, who do not hold to this false teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. Stand your ground. The enemy is going to attack. Stand your ground. Listen, Satan is a furious enemy, always on the prowl, always on the attack. He doesn't play by the rules. He doesn't ever stop. And his intentions are purely evil. To underestimate him or to overlook him is a huge mistake. But no one understand this. You do not need fear him. If you and I will put on everything that God has called us to put on, we can stand our ground against the schemes of the enemy. When we don't, we're going to stumble like these men. But Peter answered him, though they fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, you don't think you're going to fall away, Peter, Mr. Self-righteous, self-proud guy? You're going to go with me to the cross, are you? You're that faithful. You're that strong. I got news for you, Jesus says. Truly, I tell you, this very night, you won't even make it out of the night, Peter. You're trusting in yourself. You won't even make it out of the night. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the other disciples said the same. Before the cross, the disciples were self-righteous, proud men who thought, I have it in me to follow the Savior. Even to death, little did they realize that the enemy they were up against and the power that he had. Listen, folks, we might have all the confidence in the world in ourselves, but we are no match for the enemy. We might have supreme confidence in our bank accounts, in our pensions, in our families, in ourselves. We are no match for the enemy. Some will think we're crazy to trust the Lord the way that we do. But when we do, folks, we are guaranteed victory. So I finish today with a simple question. It's a powerful question. Where does your strength come from? Do you have a war horse? Do you have an idol in your life that you're looking to other than the Lord? Today's the day to set that war horse aside. Today's the day to smash that idol and put all of your hope in the Lord. Trust in all of the Lord with all of your strength all of the time. Put on the whole armor of God. Find your strength in the Lord. Amen? Let me pray. Father in heaven, as we leave here today, may we be a humbled people dependent upon you in every way. May we be a people that daily walk in the armor that you have provided, 
God, a bold and courageous people standing our ground in the critical positions that you have us in. Lord, let, remind us. I pray that, a, that there's not one person in here today that leaves thinking that they are not making a difference or that they're not serving a purpose. God, each of us are in critical positions. You have stationed us and put us right where we are in the families that we are in and the neighborhoods that we are in. God, may we stand our ground and up, may we stand against the schemes of the enemy. God, as we go through this series, I pray that our hearts continue to be lit on fire, that we would be lit up, and God, that we would change this state, this country, this world, not because of anything we do, but because you are in us doing a mighty and awesome work. We love you. We thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name, and the church said with me, amen. God bless you. Listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour of our broadcast program. Here at Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, we strive to aid in the spiritual maturity of our listeners. Since 2000, we have dedicated our lives to make disciples of all nations through internet broadcasting or through our CD delivery program. Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast 
All you have to do is search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries to listen to or download this week or past week's programs. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Coming up next is Understanding Israel. Hello, everyone. This is Susan Holtgrew, your host for our program series, Understanding Israel. So far, we have studied the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We looked at the history of these feasts in the Old Testament and then learned how Jesus fulfilled the pictures and the promises during the time he was here. Today we are going to discuss the Feast of First Fruits, also known as the Feast of Harvest. So let's go back into the book of Exodus. The children of Israel have left Egypt and have passed through the divided Red Sea and are now on their way to the Promised Land. The Lord has provided water and manna for them, and Moses has been up on Mount Sinai and received the Ten Commandments. God also speaks to Moses about ordinances for the people, property rights, and other miscellaneous laws. Then in chapter 23, verse 14, God says, Three times a year you shall celebrate a feast to me. God wanted the people of Israel to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread that we learned about last week, and then he says in verse 16, Also you shall observe the Feast of the Harvest, of the first fruits of your labors, from what you sow in the field. Also the Feast of the Ingathering, at the end of the year when you gather in the fruit of your labors from the field. Now let's skip to verse 19a, where God says, you shall bring the choice first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. This is to occur at the beginning of the harvest, where the children of Israel were to bring the very best fruits and grains as a sacrificial offering to God, thanking him for providing for them and that he would bless them during the harvest season. Nothing was to be harvested until the first fruits offering was brought before the Lord, as God commanded in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 9 through 11. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land which I am going to give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord for you to be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. This offering was to remind the people of Israel of their journey from Egypt and God's deliverance from their bondage of slavery. The feast was also used to calculate the proper time of the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, which we will be studying next week. Now the timing of this feast is that it occurs on the third day after Passover and the second day after the Feast of Unleavened Bread started. Do you see the connection with Jesus? Jesus was crucified on Passover and was resurrected on the first day of the Feast of First Fruits. Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection, as Paul states in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 
2.23, in the New King James Version, he writes, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. The New Testament refers to first fruits symbolically several times. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 15, Paul writes, Now I urge you, brethren, you know, the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. Here Paul refers to these first believers in the region as first fruits of a harvest of souls that was yet to come. James calls believers a type of first fruits in chapter 1, verse 18, where he writes, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. In other words, Jesus' resurrection on the first day of the Feast of First Fruits indicates that he is the first and the very best, perfect in fact, offering to God the Father. Now all who believe in Jesus are the harvest of souls until he calls us to be with him. And we, the church, are also known as first fruits that come before the tribulation saints and the Jews who have fled Judea during the tribulation. As Jesus prophesied in Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 and 16, Jesus said, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. In the book of Revelation, John describes what life will be like during the tribulation period. He also writes about the 144,000 bondservants, and in chapter 7, verses 2 through 4, John writes, And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard a number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Basically, these are Jewish evangelists who have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus the Messiah. Then in Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 and 4, John writes, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. These men are the godly nucleus of Israel, the beginning of a great harvest of Jews to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, their Messiah. In closing for today, we have four references for the concept of first fruits. 
First, the feast that was set up in the Old Testament to honor God with the very best at the beginning of the harvest. Second is Jesus, the first fruit of the resurrection, and the church age is the harvest of souls until he calls us to himself. Third is the church being the first fruits, followed by the tribulation saints and the salvation of the Jews. And finally, the 144,000 Jewish evangelists who are the first fruits in bringing salvation to the Jewish people. Until next time, God bless you all. And goodbye. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the King who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.